Hey everyone, welcome back. It is episode 14 of the Find Me in Seattle podcast. I appreciate you all for joining me in your ears today. Uh, let's see what has been going on. It's Friday, February 21st. I need to start off the show saying happy anniversary to my lovely fiance, Amanda, uh, because the only reason I get to do all of this ridiculous stuff on the internet is really because of the support for her, and she's uh, gone through this whole thing the last seven years dating me putting up with me and my ridiculous shenanigans and the idea of like, Hey, I can make a living by doing this weird thing and trying to grow this Instagram account and doing this podcast. She's just been so supportive and uh, I love you a lot, Amanda. Happy anniversary. And uh, we started off the day going to my favorite donut place, Ray's donuts in the central district. Shout out to owner me, Kim and for her delicious, inspiring story. And, unbelievable donuts just so creative they're yeast raised donuts they're just very different than what you're gonna get at top pot donuts here in seattle uh got nothing wrong with top pot i eat those also but uh if you get a chance go check out me kim's raised donuts in the central district they are delicious uh they've got this coffee crumbler donut that amanda is obsessed with i'm particularly obsessed with the raspberry holes those of you here on uh youtube can see me holding one right now because i got a box of six donuts on my own and I've got two left. I've got the cookie donut and I have like a raspberry, I can't remember what it was, like a raspberry chocolate bar or something. But they are absolutely delicious. And it was just a wonderful start to my day. Well, I mean, whenever you start off with donuts, isn't it a great day? And so beyond that, what else? This week was very weird for me because I got sick over last weekend. It was like right after I did the show, I got sick and... It was a tough recovery. I don't get sick very often. I don't really remember. It's been a while since like I had to take days off and I just like sit and rest because I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. And I got that flu shot a couple weeks ago that I talked about a couple weeks ago in the podcast. And I was like sick, kind of feverish the day after that. And I just wonder how these are related, if they're related at all. I think the doctor would say that they're not related, but it just seemed suspicious. That I got sick, but before I go to Thailand, I'd rather get sick now than get sick later. But it really put a cramp on my plans for the week. I had to cancel pretty much all my meetings and all my activities I was planning to do. So it has been a relatively slow, unproductive week, which maybe I couldn't afford before I leave. But that's what happens when you get sick. If you do get sick, make sure you're washing your hands as much as you can. I think this has just made me think more about I've got to continue to wash my hands as much as I can whenever I think about it, especially when I get home from public. Uh, we're just spreading germs all over the place constantly. All right, enough of me for the week. It's kind of a different episode. Actually, it's not really a different episode because the last two weeks I've had these uh, themes about uh, co different communities here in Seattle. Maybe that's where this podcast is going. Each week is a, a different theme or I'm highlighting a different community. Uh, but it just keeps happening to coming up here in the month of February. There's so many interesting history and facts with the Seattle community that coming up. And so this week's episode, I am dedicating it to learning and educating you a little bit about uh, the some some of the worst times in American history and, and a time here in Seattle that I mean, people don't really talk about because it was bad. And that is 
talking about the internment of Japanese Americans back during World War II in the 1940s and how this got brought up uh, and shout out to to listener and big time supporter of me. I'm so grateful for you, Wendy. Uh, Wendy put this on my radar. I really didn't even know about it. And uh, she's been spreading a bunch of words and articles and, and that really helped educate me. So pretty much everything uh, is thanks to Wendy for sharing this on her Facebook page. And that got me into diving. And so I'm going to be pulling some of this history as I'm educating you uh, from historylink.org. That's going to be the big place. And then also I got some stuff here from Crosscut. But let's dive in to some of the history. And, and, and why we're talking about it this week was that on Wednesday, February 19th, was the anniversary of, let me pull up the article here, of uh, on February 19th, 1942, the President of the United States authorized our government to incarcerate Americans simply because they looked like the enemy. This was known, uh, or we're going to get into that here. So let's go in. I've, I actually got notes this week that we're going to talk about, which I'm very proud of myself for all this research. Uh, that. You know, I can get it all right for you guys. So, all right. It's 1940s America. The Japan had just bombed Pearl Harbor. Europe had, I guess, and Asia had been fighting World War II already for years now, and the U.S. had not been involved. Um, but after the bombing, what happened was uh, they – the expulsion and imprisonment of 110,000 persons of Japanese ancestry from the U.S. West Coast, right? Two-thirds of these 110,000 people were already American citizens as well. And so after the bombing, the U.S. government wasted no time in clamping down on the 9,600 Japanese Americans here in King County. And on December 7th, uh, this is, I believe, 1941, uh, the FBI began making arrests. And so, yeah, this is pretty much, what, the day after Pearl Harbor that this started happening. Um, and it's just crazy to think about, um, you know, this wasn't that long, right? It, it was 80 years, but, wow, it's actually coming up on 100 years here. No, it was 80 years. and But that's still terrifying, scary, and, I mean, huge black eye here in American history. So, so we'll keep going. So in the following days, Japanese were ordered to stay away from railroad tunnels, highway bridges, and radio stations. Travel was restricted. Uh, business licenses were revoked and bank accounts were frozen. At King Street Station, there was Japanese red cap porters and they were replaced by Filipinos. And the Filipino people were wearing identification buttons reading Filipino. And I want to stop there because... I feel like this applies a little bit, not not directly today, but but we're doing kind of similar things, right? We're very quick to point fingers at at perceived bad guys for doing one thing, acting one way, saying things, treating people in another way, and then the same people who are criticizing them are actually doing that to other people, right? And having their own prejudice and their own um, you know, calling out people that are not calling out kind of some of their own misgivings. And we're, I'm thinking back this in 1942 and, and what's happening in Nazi Germany. Um, Jewish people are being detained I mean, they're being sent to concentration camps, work camps. They are, uh, they're walking around with 
stars on their clothing so they can be identified. And now we look back and, and obviously we shun all of that stuff that was going on. And, and it's just absolutely terrible, horrible situation. But then we look and we look at the history and it's like, whoa, we were, we weren't any better. We did the exact same thing uh, to people here in our own community here in Seattle. And we we're having people wear buttons really just to distinguish themselves that they weren't Japanese because as we've seen, uh, with plenty of different issues, right? We're very quick to judge. And I know I talked about coronavirus here previously, just very quick to jump on people uh, without really knowing who they are or where they're from or uh, what their story is. And, and I mean, this is a part of history, yeah, that I didn't really know about that. You know, just imagine people having these buttons to distinguish this is who I am. Like, don't, you know, I'm not them. It's just terrible. So continuing the story, there was Lieutenant General John DeWitt. He was the head of the Western Defense command uh and he left no doubt that japanese and japanese americans were singled out for mass exclusion on racial grounds on february 14th 1942 dewitt wrote quote the japanese race is an enemy race and while many second and third generation japanese born on united states soil possessed united states citizenship and have become americanized their racial stains are indulated and on February 19th, 1942, this is where we get into the anniversary, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, authorizing the forced evacuation. Both Seattle Mayor Earl Milliken and Governor Arthur Langley from 1900-1966 declared their support of the removal. That's just amazing, especially because Roosevelt, I think, really gets kind of like put up um, in pretty high status. And this because of the dealings of World War II and the bombing of Pearl Harbor. But this was absolutely horrendous. Like, could you imagine what that would if a president was doing? I mean, I guess a president is doing that on the border of Mexico right now, incarcerating people. So maybe he's not much better. And uh, well, he definitely is not much better. He's not better at all. Uh, but we're not talking about him. And so on March 30th, 1942, Japanese Americans from Baybridge Island in the Puget Sound became the first group in the nation to be evacuated. Uh, a few weeks later in Seattle on Tuesday, April 21st, evacuation announcements were posted on telephone poles and bulletin boards. And if you go look at the article here at historylink.org, you can actually see uh, police officers posting up these notices of uh, – Anyone from ancestor or Japanese ancestry, like you are asked to leave the city and, and move away. You, and they called it evacuated, which is just terrible. And so uh, the community was asked to leave the city in three groups uh, the following Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. Beginning on August 10th, 1942, most Seattleites were sent to the Minidoka Relocation Center, which is in South Idaho, uh, 100 miles southeast of Boise. And this was one of 10 inland concentration camps filled with Japanese Americans um, who were evacuated all over the West Coast. I know there's some famous ones uh, because California was kind of the the biggest population. Uh, but there was also a total of 12,892 persons of Japanese ancestry from the Washington State were incarcerated. The Seattle and Puyallup Valley Japanese were sent to Puyallup, and they quote, assembly center and then on to Minidoka. And so this assembly center was right where uh, the Washington state fair was. And they were there uh, 
that that camp was there from April 28th to September 23rd. Um, and, and this was a crazy description. It said, against a surreal backdrop of a racetrack, roller coaster, and a Ferris wheel, barracks had been constructed in converted livestock stalls, under grandstands, and on parking lots. Boards for floors were laid flat on the ground so that grass grew between the cracks. Some mattresses were issued, but many internees had to stuff straw into canvas bags. It's just a horrifying thought to think about what these people went through. And they weren't involved. They were not guilty of anything, right? It was because of their heritage that got put in this. I mean, this thing, this has been hard for me to research because it, it's just terrible, terrible thing that we did in American history. And this just isn't for, I mean, this was one generation ago, uh, right? Like my grandparents were growing up in this and anyone that, you know, that has Japanese history, this is their parents and grandparents who went through this, right? This is not far away from us. And so on January, 1943, um, the U S military began to, um, admit what they call, I think, I believe it's Nisei, which are the first generation Japanese Americans. Uh, many young men were eager to volunteer for the military in hope of improving their post-war status of all their families, right? All these families had been kicked out of their communities. And so I think there was a lot of young men who were like, I'm going to join the military to, pr- I guess, prove and, er- and earn that status and that respect back. And, uh, some good things that were here, there, were, there was an infantry in World War II, and it was the 100th Infantry Battalion and the 442nd Regimental Combat Team served with distinction, suffering huge casualties and helping to end the war in Europe. For its size and length of service, the 442nd was the most decorated military union in the war. This is a World War II. There are millions of people involved with this war, so... Um, I mean, that's just an incredible accomplishment by them. Um, and we're moving forward. Concentration camp residents were encouraged to relocate to the Midwest and East Coast after the war. Um, beginning in January 1945, they were permitted to move back to the U.S. West Coast. Right, But all of these people who had been uprooted from their homes and their communities, had their bank accounts frozen, uh, had family members die in these camps, all of a sudden it was like, okay, the war's over. Like you guys can go back to Seattle and, you know, figure out your lives. Imagine how difficult that must have been uh, to even want to move back. I mean, so much respect for the people who came back and pulled themselves up and created new lives for themselves. Um, Yeah, I mean, that is just true inspiration of people to go through these terrifying, horrible instances where they weren't guilty of anything and to create something for themselves is absolutely just astonishing. And so I know that's a lot. I'm reading kind of this whole article here to enlighten you a little bit about the history of Japanese internment because it is a huge history. It has a big influence here on our community. It is a big part. And I just think it's something that we all should be aware of and we should all know about. It's absolutely a terrible thing. And uh, yeah, we have to reconcile that in some type of way. And so in inspired by learning about all this, I happened to be in the international district 
this week and I, and I was creating some videos and some stories for a friend to talk about the history of the international district. And, and I was just kind of researching some of the businesses and I happened to stumble on a business and this is my featured business of the week and their name is Maneki. Now Maneki, it's on like the North part of the international district and it's the oldest Japanese restaurant in Seattle. They opened in 1904. Right, I think this year they're celebrating their hundred and 16th birthday, which is just, that's a long time, right? And in a world where it's like 30% of businesses fail, I'm sorry, 30% of restaurants fail in the first year. And this place has been open for over a hundred years. I mean, shout out to, to them. That's an incredible achievement for anyone. And the fact that they opened this early and they have survived this internment time is it's pretty mind blowing, right? And so this family that owned, they were forced to leave and they did come back and they reopened the restaurant and, and they've had a lot of success. I mean, there's people standing outside the door waiting to get in every single day. They've got a whole history of locals. I mean, multiple generations of families walk through here. And so I want to highlight a little bit about Maneki and their history here in Seattle, if you didn't know them, and they are my featured business of the week. So Maneki was originally located about a half a block north from its current location uh, and in what they call the grand three-story structure built to resemble a Japanese castle. And the ownership of Maneki has changed only a few times over that over 100-year history. The longest owners were the, uh, I apologize if I pronounced this wrong, the Sato family, it might have been Sato, I'm not sure, but Tokuchi Sato owned Maneki between 1923 and the early 1960s when he handed ownership over to his daughter, Shi-Chan Virginia Ichikawa, and her husband, Joe. The restaurant is now officially owned by the nonprofit Inter-IM CDA, an organization dedicated to the preservation of Seattle's International District. Once again, I apologize for the pronunciation. I was reading these articles, not listening to them. And if I mess those up, uh, shoot me a message and let me know so I can not make that mistake again. Um, and so the original, they called it the castle like Maneki was ransacked and vandalized during the war. And so uh, the war happens, right? Everyone of Japanese descent is ordered to at least evacuate the city, leave the city. Majority of them are sent to these internment camps in Southern Idaho. They're there for up to four years. And then, the war's over and it's like, oh, like, here you guys, you can go back now, which is just, I mean, mind numbing, terrible to think about, like, how quickly it was just like, oh, our bad. And so after the war, the Sato, the Sato family returned to Washington State and reopened Maneki in the location that had been used as a storage space during the, the war. And it's actually the same location that's been there for now over 60 years. And that's just, I mean... An incredible history that, yeah, I didn't know about. I assume a lot of you didn't know about. And uh, I have been to Maneki once years ago. And and when I went, I, I wasn't doing this by me in Seattle thing. I probably didn't even really care about the history. Uh, I thought maybe it was cool. But uh, learning all about what happened with the anniversary this week and serendipitously going and learning some more about the International District and walking up to that building, uh, this is definitely going to be a place that I'll be highlighting here on a video. Uh, in the spring because they deserve it. It's a story that needs to continue to be told. And, and I'd love to make that story. And so, uh, I had a different planned meal of the week, but then I was, I got caught in this, uh, 
Japanese circle of content that I was reading. I was like, you know what? I'm doing feature business. I did eat a meal here from a Japanese restaurant. And so my featured meal of the week comes from my favorite ramen restaurant that I feel is so underrated. Nobody talks about it except uh, a few people on Instagram. But that is Yoroshiku on 45th in Wallingford. Uh, shout out to the owner, Kay. He's just been so supportive of me over the years. I remember this must have been six years ago. I walked in there and it was when I was making the maps in my old job. And he was just always so supportive of me as a young entrepreneur trying to help businesses and share stories and 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 uh, also grow my career and, and build community here in Seattle. And his story is really interesting when he was uh, – international student at the university of washington this is when the the hype for teriyaki was real big he didn't have any ramen uh the the food that he knows from back home from growing up in japan and he really missed it while he was here so after after he graduated he went back to japan and uh he learned a recipe uh perfected a recipe for ramen and moved back here to seattle and he opened up Yoroshiku, uh, which also kind of roughly translate in is the address 4649 there in Wallingford. And he to see how much it's grown, it used to be just like this tiny little place with a few tables. It was like a little alley, a tiny little spot. He ended up buying out um, or at least leasing out the space, which used to be a tea shop there in Wallingford. They knocked down the wall. He's built out. Now it's like this large restaurant. He's got this huge bar. Uh, they do sake tastings and and there's just like great, vibrant ramen shop there, full of community, always busy. Um, and it's a business that I am very proud to support. And I'm constantly going there, taking friends there. Uh, I celebrated my birthday there this past year. But shout out to Yoroshiku. You are my meal of the week. Thanks for always uh, having that great ramen. And uh, I appreciate you, Kay, for always supporting me and, and helping me throughout my journey. We both come a long way. Oh, yes. Yoroshiku. They also have a restaurant. I have not been there yet, but it's over in Redmond. Uh, so if you're an East Side listener, please go check out Yoroshiku over there as well. Well, let me make sure I got everything here on my list. I think that concludes this episode of the Find Me in Seattle podcast. Uh, I got to figure out whatever I'm titling this. Hopefully that caught your attention related to uh, wanting to know more about the Japanese internment camps here in Seattle a giant black eye on the history of not only Seattle, King County, but America in general. Um, we are not always, you know, this shining star. Uh, we're not always the good guys, right? We, I think we like to think of ourselves and brand ourselves, uh, but the things that are happening here politically in the United States aren't as far off as we think from the terrible things that we've done in our past. And there are, are some very unfortunate ways that we're treating people here in America um, a lot through the political system. And it shows, I mean, we haven't learned our lessons. We're still very guilty of not treating people like humans. And this was not very long ago that, you know, we committed these horrific sins um, against the Japanese residents and the people who contribute to our communities. And it's so unfortunate. So I hope that you learned a little bit here about the history uh, and the anniversary of February 19th and Roosevelt uh, passing that law to or executive order, should I say 9066, uh, which was forced evacuation uh, by both our mayor and the governor of Washington supported their removal. Just absolutely 
terrible moment in American history, but we should know about that. I hope you learned something here this week. Thanks a lot for listening to the Find Me in Seattle podcast. I will be back next week uh, for another episode. I think everything that I was going to talk about this week, I'm going to talk about next week. And so stay tuned. And uh, yeah, please leave a review. If you're watching this on iTunes, I could really use five stars. It's super easy. If you're listening on the podcast right now, swipe up and it's like right there at the bottom. Leave me a review. You can always hit me up on Instagram. If you're watching here on YouTube, I appreciate you guys watching that video here as well. And uh, I appreciate your support as always. Thanks again. Shout out to Wendy. Thanks for always being a supporter. And uh, the articles that you shared inspired me to do this episode. And so thank you for constantly being such a great supporter of the Seattle community. Uh, you know, you deserve a key to the city. I love everything you do. Thank you so much for sharing all the education so I could learn more and share it here on the show. And uh, to everyone else, enjoy your upcoming weekend. I love you lots. See you next week.